everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we will be determining whether Guillermo del Toro's latest film is more cinema or beast. That's right, today we will be discussing del Toro's first film since winning the Oscar, Nightmare Alley. And we couldn't really properly explore nightmares without longtime friend and contributor at the Cinematropolis, Daniel Bokemper. Daniel Bokemper, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Uh, thank you for being the nightmare fuel. You left off strongest film critic in the world, capable of lifting, maybe not lifting, writing 75 reviews within an hour, and you can see him for just 25 cents. Daniel Bocamper, which is at a, not at all. Can they pull on the beard for an extra 25? Yeah, uh, 50, but yes. <laughs> Daniel, it's always a pleasure to have you at the table. Thank so how you, are you so much for having me. I am great. Uh, very excited to talk about. I think this may. Yeah, we I, I at least wasn't involved in any conversation about uh, Del Toro's last film, Shape of Water. I, did you cover that one? On the- yeah, I wrote an essay on it. You can find that over at the cinematropolis.com. I think we may have touched on it on the podcast, but I can tell you we definitely have a long-form essay uh, just sort of examining the themes of that, and I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for you listeners today. Again, exploring something we're going to talk about again today a little bit, which is the power of love and empathy to overcome the monstrosity that is human depravity. That giant kaiju that is human depravity. (laughs) All right. Well, listeners, as always, we're so glad that you're here with us today talking about which, you know, what is one of my most anticipated films of the year. But before we do get into today's review of Nightmare Alley, I did want to quickly note that if you were listening to the show today or if you listened to past episodes and you're enjoying the conversation, please make sure to support the show by subscribing to the Cinematic Schematic and leaving us a rating and a review on your preferred podcast app. This is most relevant on Apple Podcasts, where if you go in and you give us a five-star rating, it actually helps us get discovered by more listeners just like yourself. And if you want to go above and beyond, you write a review that says Daniel's beard will pull for 75 cents, five stars. You put that in there, you're a real winner in our book. Well, they come see me for 25 cents. The extra 50 cents is the beard pull. Okay. 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 All right. All right. We got to be clear. That's how you get the marks. You got to, you got to set the expectations. That's right. You got to show up and pay the 25 cents before you even have a chance to pay the 50 cents. Exactly. This sounds like some sort of like marketing scheme all of a sudden, like, Hey, subscribe, subscribe to the Daniel Bo Kemper hangout for 25 cents a month. And then for an extra 50 cents, once you're bought in, you pull a beard. Well, okay. Isn't like every comic con kind of like that too. Don't you pay like $80 to go into the hall to buy things? Step right up here, get ya, get in, you got your autograph, she got your swag, and it's only like $5,000. Exactly. Cosplayers, manga. We knew you had sacrificed your first and second born to get these tickets and get in here, and we know that you probably paid a ton of money to travel here, but once you're in here, you can spend your money over here, you can get the exclusive autograph. Giant Lego Thanos. I will sacrifice my third born child for that. Lego yeah, Thanos. I yeah. know. That's yeah. <laughs> it was the first two to get in third for that Lego Thanos. Wow. This guy took a dark turn uh, very quickly. All right. So, uh, Daniel, before we actually get really in the weeds on Nightmare Alley, of course, as you know, we like to break the ice here. You've been on several shows in the past. So I thought today to give listeners a little bit inside of what we're, you know, about uh, our film taste and where we're coming from, we could talk about. Other movies featuring carnivals. Carnivals, which were heavily featured in the promo materials for Nightmare Alley. Icebreaker question for this week. 
What is your favorite movie or movies set with carnivals or the circus as the backdrop? Oh, of course I cannot pick just one. I don't think it's possible. So I've got three. The first would be uh, Todd Browning's Freaks from 1932. Whoa, going all the way back. Very uh, incredibly exploitative um, and should uh, not be upheld for that. Um, in fact, if you look at like the original film poster, I think it has like a tagline that's like, can a woman marry a midget or something like that? And it's like, yeah, that's not cool anymore. Um, but in the same breath, it did, I think, establish a lot of um, both horror tropes and also um, ideas of, again, ableism. And I think it inadvertently explores them while simultaneously, I think, trying to just exploit them. Um, and also uh, one of us, one of us, one of us. Um, are we trying to, are you trying to have me join your bearded cult? Right yes. Now? Okay. <laughs> and, um, on that, in that same breath, I would say, uh, Dumbo. Um, I think that's wait, 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 the original or the, 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 the remake. I haven't seen the Tim Burton remake. Is it, is it all right? I haven't seen it either. You what? I really want to see it actually. Me I, too. That's of all of them, it fascinated me, but you know, it just came out one of those things. I didn't prioritize my Disney remakes. That's the one of the ones they've released. That's the one I was most interested I, in. I feel like it came out like it was like sandwiched, but. It was. It came out at a weird time. I want to say it was like a, in a March or April time frame. Yeah. It came out right after another Disney remake and right before another one. I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. And um, so now I am referring to the original Dumbo, which is the f fifth, fourth, fourth or fifth animated uh, film from Disney. Very incredible. Very moving story about an elephant that uh, wants to do what all elephants want to do, which is fly. And then finally, perhaps the most important, most poignant circus film, Big Top Pee Wee. Which, big Top Pee-wee. Yeah. Pee-wee. Have you not, you know, like Pee-wee Herman's Big yeah, Adventure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big Adventure. Yeah, uh, this is, the, Herman show, this yeah. is the final, I think it's the third Pee-wee Herman film. and uh, But it's also the most, like, subdued. Like, it's actually, like, it, it, it gets rid of a lot of the, you know, zombie. And, um, you know, here's the funny thing about Pee-wee Herman. I have only ever seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure and episodes of the show. Uh, the movie I found to be compelling, although I found Pee-wee to be a little creepy. The show, however, I found to be terrifying. I know. Hey, Zombie. You didn't like that? No. no. <laughs> oh, my God. I love yeah, it. I, I, know, I, want my, I wish my furniture would talk to me a little bit more. On this podcast, Mike, speak to you. I'm glad that there are some Pee Wee fans out there. Uh, listeners, this is your chance to send us an email at thecinematropolis at gmail.com to tell us about how, whether or not you're a Pee Wee fan. If so, what's your favorite Pee Wee movie? Or more importantly, what is your favorite movie featuring the circus or carnival? Daniel, your, your picks were a lot of fun. I like the deep cuts. Mine's a little more personal. Uh, very favorite film of mine that is not fully set at the circus, but it is a big part of the story is Big Fish, another Tim Burton film. And I love it because, one, Ewan McGregor. I mean, I'm there. I just love I'll watch him in anything. He's in some pretty bad stuff sometimes, but I'll watch it. It's great. And he's always great. Secondly, Tim Burton. Tim Burton, not in his, I would say, in a much more subdued Tim Burton type film. I mean, it's got... It's got a lot of his eccentricities in a lot of way, but it doesn't have the gothic vibe that we're used to seeing in a lot of his films. It's not yeah. dark in that way, and I found it really moving. And thirdly, it's a, a movie about storytelling that I found really powerful, like the the stories, the, the meaning of stories and how we pass them down from generation to generation and how they're both true but also take on larger-than-life like details as they're passed along. Again, really a moving story for me. I think more people should check it out, and it should be more celebrated that's Big Fish. Check it out. Absolutely. Wow. What a... Uh, I need to revisit that one. That's one of those films that's like always 
at the back of my mind. With that said, listeners, again, you can tell us what are your favorite films that are set with a carnival or a circus in the backdrop. With that, all that said, it's time for us to move into our review of Nightmare Alley. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle. Doctor, how about that? Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. According to IMDb, Nightmare Alley can be described as an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words, hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Firstly, I, I mean, I complain about IMDb synopses on this show all the time, and maybe I just need to, yes, Caleb, you could go somewhere else and get it, but IMDb is also the most popular place, and if you need a quick answer, here it is. Yeah. But I also am going to, maybe this would be a corner where I criticize the synopses, because I actually feel like this this is vaguely spoilery, honestly. So thanks a lot, IMDb. Let's talk a bit more about our perspectives on the beloved Guillermo del Toro. This guy has done everything in nerd culture. We, we go all the way back to uh, whether it's his original films like Kronos or we, we look at uh, Pan's Labyrinth. He made a big splash with the Spanish-speaking films. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's the the nerd culture fan favorite, Blade 2. Two, I yeah. Still love it. We, I rewatched it recently, and let me tell you, it's still great. Uh, you know, or more recently, uh, you could go and look at the giant kaiju battles with uh, Pacific Rim, uh, or you could go with your gothic horror with Crimson, Crimson Peak. Peak. Yeah, yeah, Crimson Peak. And most recently, the Oscar, where he he took his like love for movie monsters and, and put it in a more prestige type setting uh, with The Shape of Water. So this guy has done, done a lot of things. He's pushed... Yeah. The idea of the movie monster into new territories and in the mainstream in a way I don't think other directors have been able to accomplish. Daniel Bokemper, what do, what do you think about Del Toro? Are you a fan? Like, what do you like? What don't you like? Oh, I'm definitely a fan. Um, so much so that I think – so here's the thing with, with, with old Guillermo is we tend to, I think, forgive – like he's such a great visual storyteller. He's such an impactful and powerful visual storyteller. And he has a very um, keen eye, but even, even before, you know, things like, like I think my first experience for him was probably with him was probably Hellboy. Um, oh, how can we forget Hellboy? Kid. Yeah. Yeah. Hellboy um, in both Hellboy and Hellboy two, uh, the golden army and the, the third film that never, no, that Dan, what are you talking about? There was a third film. There was I, there was a Hellboy film that existed after them both. Yes, I unfortunately that did try to, and that's the other thing is I, what that film is a good example of is 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 serves the point that I'm trying to say now, which is there that like Del Toro has an aesthetic. He has at this point, I think it's safe to say. I, I know, yeah, you can see where it comes from, but he has built his own aesthetic. He has built his own mode of visual storytelling, I think. And that's really effective in some of his early films. The Devil's Backbone is one um, that that might be my favorite um, del Toro film. Um, and while it doesn't have the set design and, and all of the things that he eventually would, would 
you know, we would see in again, Hellboy Pan's Labyrinth. It is still just an exceptional film and exceptionally like poignant story. Um, in the same way that I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll see with nightmare alley, but, but I does, it does mean I tend to forgive, I think certain things and I tend to give, forgive certain faults. And I think it was with Pacific rim that I realized he might not be the best at everything. Um, and, and so it's, it's there. He does have some misses, but they are few and far in between overall. He is exceptional. And I think he really is one of the auteurs, you know, the modern auteurs. I, I, I think at this point there should be an adjective to describe him. You know, we have Spielberg and I, I, I would assume they're deltorian. I don't, I don't know if that's the, the best way. I think if you say delteracious, uh, delteracious, uh, <laughs> no, I would agree. He is, like you said, carved out a very specific niche and style that is uniquely his. And I remember even going back to the Hellboy films, he, he was so passionate about using puppets, you know, when, when in the time when everything was moving to CG, he's like, no, no, no. What, how can we do this practically? And, and, and what's beautiful is those films still hold up because of it versus, you know, a lot of films coming out the time where the CG is not aged very well. So no, I'm 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 really with you on here. I mean, I've liked Del Toro for a while. I love Del Toro for a while. Is probably a better word. I think, like a lot of people on the internet, uh, Pan's Labyrinth was again. I was coming of age when that film kind of hit its stride and hit the release, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can be a cool kid because I watched a movie with Spanish subtitles. That's a fairy tale, but it's about so much more. Uh, but here's the fact: the matter is, it's a great film, and on a lot of levels, production design, creature design storytelling uh, it's a it's a it's still it's very dark and twisted but still feels like a whimsical fairy tale uh and that was probably my first r- real experience why I, I appreciated his his work beyond that um and from there you know it's just a matter of like okay what else this guy do uh i probably had seen blade 2 before pan's labyrinth actually but didn't really put two and two together that I, that was probably before i was of the age where i cared about who directed a movie in that way you know i was going to say it was at least until like crimson peak when i was actually looking into some background on del toro that i realized he directed blade too but it's a film you can go back to and you can see oh Alan, yeah i mean his his uh his signature is on that film clearly like it's, absolutely yeah and and i think that's what i mean is he is he is definitely um like a lot of people you know a, a lot of people watch films um they may not always gravitate towards directors quite as much but like del toro that i mean it's a Almost as much, or if not more so than like Tim Burton. I know we're we're, we're talking about him a lot more. I, I think Del Toro has an even more distinct, or at least he's a little. Maybe he doesn't experiment quite as much, but I think he he is definitely has a lot more control over his own voice than maybe like Tim Burton does. So audience, as you can see, we are very passionate Del Toro fans here. So there is some bias, and Daniel, I can relate. I I do think you know watching Pacific Rim, which is a film I love. But there was a point where I had to question his writing a little more. I still think he's a great writer, by yeah. the way. Yeah. What I learned, though, is that, you know, sometimes it was it was a part of me coming to terms with the fact that, like, sometimes it's good for a, a really strong director to also have a strong producer or people within his inner circle or co-writer who can kind of push back on him a little bit to keep him in check a little bit. Yeah. Um, that said, again, whenever you see a Del Toro movie, it looks and feels like one of his movies. It's a really distinct uh, feeling that you have. And now we're at the point in his career, he won the Oscar, right? So uh, his film, The Shape of Water, won Best Picture. I think, yeah, he won Best Director. It was a great, great year for him. Again, sort of surprising, frankly. I was really happy that he won. I just wasn't expecting it. Double fisting Oscars. 
Oh, if I remember uh, correctly. That is correct, yes. <laughs> so, Daniel, with this, you know, with this in mind, though, okay, so we've talked about a bunch of his past films. He's done, let's just quickly go over it. So he's done vampire movies. Right. Uh, he's done kaiju movies. Kaiju movies. Uh, he's done haunted house movies. He's done ghost movies, The he's, Devil's Backbone, and Crimson and Peak. And Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak is a haunted house, too. It's like yes. both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's both, a, well, yeah, ghost story. And uh, and then there's also uh, Pan's Labyrinth is a dark fairy tale. Yes. You know, so he's done a lot. And we're not even talking about the stuff he's produced, which is no. much larger. This is just films he's directed. Were you at all when when you saw that Nightmare Alley was his next feature? Like mm-hmm. this is an adaptation of a book, a novel. I don't believe either of us had read. No, nineteen forty four, uh, and that's all I. <laughs> There's also the extent a, of my knowledge is the year. As I discovered preparing that there was actually a Nightmare Alley film that I had never seen that came out uh, back in the forties or fifties, I think. Oh, okay. So it's, there's an older film that came out as well, and it's so funny. So my first, you know connection with this was the trailer and i was like oh this is a movie set at a carnival this is del toro doing his carnival movie yeah and uh so i think before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of it i'm sitting here thinking this is gonna be a great carnival movie interesting choice though even before i get into like the actual film i was like uh, so he wins the oscar he's won he's he's made successful studio films he's he's won critical reception he's now been recognized by his peers what does he do next he does another movie that feels like a movie he would make anyway so i'm just kind of curious about what your thoughts on there was it what you expected is it what you wanted uh, tell me i have a lot of hopes for del toro i think as to what he would do and 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 i can't um you know with confidence say what he should do it does feel like i mean it feels like an appropriate film for him to make it feels like a film he would have made a while ago right. i guess um, and I, I do, so it, if I'm just going to compare it directly to, to shape of water, um, since that's our, that's our closest analogous, I think, um, it's not, it's good. It's not as good as that, but, um, it, I think where he tries to push himself is to try and move away a little bit from his visual storytelling, from his aesthetic focus a lot more on characters, Um, and, and the character driven drama and in doing so you do, (laughs) we already know that, you know, just by just seeing, you know, the spectacle that is, um, his work, uh, Del Toro is not a man of, uh, of nuance. And I think this film, it becomes a lot more evident, although there are some subtleties to him, um, I guess, but as far as, you know, dialogue is concerned, um, and, 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 you know, a story's progression, um, Everything tends to, as it should, uh, have a sense of importance. But um, I find myself there's less, there's less moments that just feel kind of, I guess, organically contemplative. Is Shape of Water, I argue, does have some of those, but I just don't know if they're intentional or not. I, I, I guess they are, but with this one, I think there's a little bit less of that, and so that that's why this almost, I don't want to say it's like a step back or regressive. It just. I don't know. It's hard for me to find things that he's doing a lot differently. Um, but maybe that's why. Maybe because none of those accolades, none of these, um, you know, these these um, goals or marks or, or, or check marks or whatever that he's hit on his, I should say checkpoints that he's hit uh, across his career maybe matter to him um, so much as just making the films he wants to make at the time he wants to make them. Um, and there is an argument to be had that this may be Still, I, th- I think this is a very topical film. I just um, don't think it's going to reach. 
What do you mean, Daniel? You mean people? You mean people who buy into? Well, actually, I can't say anything. I don't want to spoil it, but um, we'll we'll get into we'll, it. We'll uh, get into it. Yeah, we'll we'll identify exactly um, who I mean. But uh, let's just say it's a I would say multi billion dollar industry, at least multi million dollar. Probably. Industry. So so but, okay, we'll clear this up. We'll clear this up because I, I guess if you know nothing about the movie whatsoever, you know you're gonna go blind. But I, I will just say this. The movie starts as being in one setting, seeming to be about one thing, and then I would say in the second act, or beginning of the second really, act yeah. even, uh, it really shifts into an entirely different type of story. Mm-hmm. And I think this is both a strength and a weakness. Yeah. I kind of like it because on one hand, the first act almost serves as like a very extensive prologue for the main story. So you feel like, like I, I understand exactly why all of the characters are doing what they're doing. And it, and it feels nice knowing that the backstory on the other hand, again, and this is just me kind of coming to terms with like, Oh, I thought this, I was expecting this and I got something a, not like radically different. Just this is a neo noir. Yeah. I did not know this going in. I did not know this was going to be a, a noir style film. Yeah. I think del Toro nails the noir elements. Yeah, it's got you know it's got it all. It's it, the the brilliant set design, eerie, moody score, the morally ambiguous characters through yes. and through. I think some of the character relationships could have been a little stronger, right? But ultimately, I think it all plays together pretty well to make a really satisfying noir. I think though, circling back to the question I asked you, I think that's the new piece here. Is he's making a noir, which I don't think he's done. This is the most traditional. Even though it's, I still, I'd still label it as a neo noir. It's the most traditionally noir film he's made, and I think that's really great. And I think he does a really good job at like with all the genre, you know, the genre tropes and trappings. Yeah, he's always at least had. Well, not always, but he's at least in a lot of films had. I think an element of noir. I think no, as far 100%. as percent, yeah, and I think especially more, more generally, it's more of um, it's more of like a housing. It's more of like in the in the background or the set design because that's why like shape of the or uh, excuse me, shape of water. Um, I think is so brilliant in that it has kind of a noir backdrop, but it's also injected with like a modern, um, like a slight modern, almost like an, I would almost say like an, uh, an acronistic tweak. Like there's a lot more of a heavy emphasis on like capital. It's almost like you took like elements of like, you know, Blade Runners, like background in the world of that with the huge giant ads and everything and kind of, you know, because it's not like Vegas is kind of like that, but it's this, you know, shape of water obviously doesn't take place in Vegas, but it does um, have this like bigger emphasis on advertisements and marketing and stuff like that. But it's also in the kind of the grime of, of noir almost in the same breath, but that's about where I think it ends in in terms of exploring noir ideas very deeply. Whereas this film, it's very more, I wouldn't, I wouldn't label, Shape of Water as a noir film. No, no, no. It's it not. Does have it's not. It has elements yeah. for sure. Right. Yeah. Nor would I label Blade Two a noir. There are certainly elements there. You know what I mean? Like there's. Well, that's what I mean. You know. Yeah. But this one, I feel like, is full. It is a noir. It film. is a noir film. Yes. Like you have a protagonist who is somewhat unreliable, doing things that are questionable. It's dark. It's moody. Mm-hmm. You're not sure how it's going to end, but you're sure it's not going to end well. You've got your femme fatale. Get your femme fatale. Like yeah. it's, it's really good at all of those things. Yes. I think though, to circle back on what I was saying though, I think the character dynamics could have been a little stronger despite them having like a whole like first act to really build up 
some of the core key relationships. I feel like they could have been a little stronger. Yeah. But ultimately I'm pretty happy with the film. I oh, think yeah. it's great. Is it the film? I don't know. Okay. So, so, so I don't, man keeps trying to do this like thing where I go back to the first question I asked you, is this what the movie I wanted to see from Del Toro post Oscar? Yeah. I don't really know what the answer to that is. Like you said, I, I'm not going to be one to be like, well, Del Toro should make this or that. I don't know what's going through his mind. I don't know. I, you know, and obviously I think this is very much in a wheelhouse he's passionate about. Yeah. I do kind of beg the question you have at this point, probably make whatever you want to make. And he makes a movie that, like you said, and I agree he probably would have made anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he probably has, he had more money. He, I mean, like his, this cast is out of control, man. I mean, you got Willem Dafoe, you got Bradley Cooper, uh, you got Rooney Mara, uh, Tony Collette, Tony Collette, Kate Blanchett, like, Ron Perlman, of Ron course. Perlman. But, I mean, we kind of knew you do. You don't even have to, in a Del Toro film, do you have to bill Ron Perlman or do you just, you know, know? what's funny. <laughs> and, 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 uh, Doug Jones, like he's got like, uh, he's got his people. You know, like this is so he has every actor he could possibly want in these roles. Right. So it's, you know, and always the best possible version of a movie. It's just one of those things you're like, well, you just you won the movie like you, you critical success, financial success. You can make whatever you want. And you're like, I'm going to make a really good version of something I want to make anyway. So yeah. I think that's both beautiful. And also I'm still kind of like, but what if he did something like just different? I'm never going to stop asking what if he did Hellboy 3. I know it's annoying to a lot of people. You know what? You're right. I, why did he not leverage why did he not leverage the critical and financial success of his now career? Now is the time get, to do it. Ron Perlman's not not going to be with us for too much and longer. I, you know, Ron Perlman has a few feats of strength in this film. But I couldn't and that's the thing. I with him I can't tell you what I want. What yeah. I can tell you is this is a movie that is playing very much in a sandbox that he's already very comfortable in that we've seen him make several films in, even though it's a noir, which is a different genre. It, like a lot of his films are very noir adjacent and it's a movie about, you know, is he man or beast? It turns out the real beast is the man, you know, yeah. like these are not, um, these are very common themes right. that we'll dive into in the spoiler section. But these, these are things that we've seen from before. And in a lot of ways, this is the best, maybe cleanest delivery of those themes or on the nose delivery of some of these themes that we've seen him, him put out there, which is not bad, but it's also like, but what if he told, does he have, the question is, does he have ambitions to make a different movie? Uh, so I'm getting away from it because I'm talking a lot about like the career of Del Toro, which I think is a little unfair to criticize this movie through that lens. I think this is a terrific movie. I loved it. It's not my favorite of his. I think it's middle of the road. I think it could have been. He either needed to focus more on the relationships with the time he had allotted or he needed to make a shorter film. But overall, I still think if you are a fan of the things that Del Toro makes, you're going to walk away saying, man, that is a really rock solid movie. I'd happily watch it again. And I'm saying that right now after after really thinking about it for three years, I'm like, I would totally watch this movie again. And it'd be very easy to watch. Yeah. And, and we cannot stress enough. I think every time <laughs> as soon as. Caleb and I were uh, walking out of the screening of this film. We were like, we were pretty quick to say middle of the road Del Toro, but like, that's still really good. That's a compliment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it is kind of hard to, to place it against the lens of the rest of his career. Um, and so I would agree. I, I am probably a little less warmer to it than you are. Um, but it, it, it does still hit on the elements and it is still like a good Del Toro film. It's just, it 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 has the disadvantage of coming out 
after Shape of Water. And whether we like it or not, whether or not it's fair to do that to a filmmaker, to compare it to their past work, that that's what every film from now on that Del Toro makes is going to be compared to. Um, and I think for some people that film, I think epitomized a lot of his filmmaking in so many ways and hit on, it, it did the best at what he's the best at doing at. And it, and, and it, and it and felt so, like a fresh take on exactly. a lot of worked and, with too. And, and then it was a love and, and we'll, we'll talk about love letters, but there was a, it was a love letter to, you know, classic Hollywood monster films and, 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 and things like that. And so it resonates in another level in that way too. And I think this film maybe does that a little bit in, a, in a, for another genre, but it's, you know, it, it has so many things going for it that it, yeah, it is hard, but I think maybe the more distance we get from it, I think in retrospect, maybe this film will appreciate a little bit more as well um, in that way. But I don't know. I, 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 it, it like, it almost, it is weird. It's like, it's a thing that like, it does everything right a little bit, but like you still kind of want a little bit more. Um, and I think what I'm wanting is a little bit more maybe experimentation and also um, at this juncture, I mean, this is an adaptation um, I'd like to see. And without knowing much of the source material, I'm sure Del Toro, of course, took his liberties to, to make this thing a little more modern. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want to see what else he can do with that adaptation, I think. Um, but I did want him to be a little bit more experimental. And I think part of that is also just trying to make this a little bit more of a tighter film, as you were saying, because when you get to that second act, a, the way the film positions it, it's not really entirely clear, I guess, at first and without knowing much about it, where it might be going. And then as soon as you get to that very clear point where where you move into um, the film's next movement, um, the, the, the stopwatch for me in my mind like started going. And then I'm like, okay, now we have a very finite window to fit what will be, I kind of, I think, like satisfactory pace for the film. Because once it starts out, say it's welcome – that's when it starts to grind down. And I do think this film got to a point where it did kind of start to grind me down a little bit. But I, I beg the question. I beg the question. Um, and I don't disagree with anything you've said. Yeah. I beg the question for you, though. Knowing exactly what this movie is now, do you think if you watched it a second time, we might we might feel differently about the pacing? Because, again, I mean, I the, would. The movie, yeah. the, movie, the movie is in a clear setting with a, a much smaller story in the first act. I assumed the whole film was going to be about that, whereas the, the second and third act is about something related but different where you're like, but, but you didn't realize that's what the meat of the movie yeah. was going to be, you know? So this might sound a little superficial. Um, so first of all, yes. Just to answer your question, yes. Um, but I will say I think <laughs> I think it could have. This sounds dumb, um, but it like I feel like it could have done without a, a title card of like, this is so many years later or whatever. Like I feel like it didn't need that, um, and that seems so small because it's just like two seconds. But I think for just like for that happening, it kind of for whatever reason, that's what started to make me question the film speed and pace, and then later things that come up reaffirm that, um, including the film's final shot. And I so, but yeah. I, I think maybe knowing what it is, yeah, it would be a little bit different. I think I would um, at least know like where it's going. It's just again his his sport storytelling sometimes can be so rapid. Maybe that's it. That like you have so much up at the front, and we were talking about this in terms of how he adapted it. We don't really, at least I don't have anything to back this up. I suspect he might have built out the carnival 
aspect of the source material, maybe a little bit. More. I wonder again, yeah, having it, not read the novel or seen the original film, because it, at the end of the day, like it, it really does feel like a prologue. Yes. Know? So you're like, okay, but, but, but because he likes, that's like his wheelhouse. That's the stuff he's really passionate about. Yeah. You know, the, he's like got that affinity for, as we saw in the shape of water for the monsters and the quote unquote freaks, you know, yeah. or the geeks, um, you know, he's got that passion for it. So it's like, he's like, well, if I'm going to make a movie at the circus, let's like make a movie at the circus, even if it's not, you know, the, the driving story of the film. It, it is. And while it feels like a prologue, it's hard to call something that's basically 45 minutes of prologue. prologue right. right. <laughs> and uh, unless we're Metal Gear Solid 3, then it gets two oh, hours of a prologue. Or Metal Gear Solid 4 for that matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thanks, Dan, for reminding me that I really want to play Metal Gear Solid 4 again. Dio Kojima. We got oh, uh, some Del Toro connections. There. It's true. Uh, Death Stranding. You should, if you like Del Toro and you want to see him in a video game, or at least his likeness in a video game, go play Hideo Kojima's Death Stranding. You know what? This takes us right into our wrap-up of the review portion, the spoiler-free review portion here, Daniel. Here we go. Uh, so what letter grade would you give Nightmare Alley? C+. Plus. Ooh, C for Carnival. C plus for Carnival. Carnival Plus. Carnival Plus. Is it like a subscription service? Yes, it oh, is. Okay. Only 55 cents a month. No, it's got to be more. Daniel, sorry. sorry. You're going to give it a C plus. C plus. I think that's a respectable rating. Okay. I'm going to give it a B. I almost want to give it a B plus, but I'm just going to say a B. Whoa. I'm just going to say a B. Okay. Uh, For Bradley Cooper's mustache. It was great. Uh, that, that's That was great. Uh, unfortunately, not great enough to get it to be plus though. No, I, I, again, we've heard us talk at length about this. I think once I was able to sort of step back and say, okay, what is this movie actually versus what I thought it was going to be? I really sort of came at, which I, it's why I think when one of these days I'll catch it a second time. And I think it's actually going to play a lot stronger for me. That said, I don't think it really pushes the envelope for a Del Toro film. So you're pretty much like the, the type of story, you, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're getting, the film you're expecting. He's not really doing anything unique thematically. Just, he's just doing it really, really well. And in a way that I think few directors in Hollywood get to do. So overall B not in Del Toro's strongest, probably middle of the pack. That means it's still very much worth your time. Yeah. Still might tech. Uh, it might still top uh, crack my top 10 list at the end of the year. We'll see. Now, with that said, though, Daniel, what alternate movie, television, novel, music, video game, or other media recommendation would you give to listeners who enjoy Nightmare Alley? Three films and a board game, which I don't know if uh, if if anybody's recommended a board game. I want to think I'm really unique on this podcast, but I have no idea. Uh, but <laughs> I don't think we've had any board game recommendations there we go. yet. There we go. Um, for the films though, however, I think my first and foremost, uh, Igmar Bergman's the magician, um, the year escapes me, but again, a film that does feature, uh, Max von Sydow and the lead as most Bergman films do about a traveling magician, magician who does in term serves partially entertainment, but also a bit of a, a medium of some kind. And the film explores again, a lot of, um, a lot of similar ground that this one does, but in, in entirely different ways, I think, um, and is not a noir film, um, in, in the sense that this one is. Um, so again, looking at something a little bit differently, but still a very good film. I would also add the devil's backbone. I mentioned it earlier, but that is my, um, personally my favorite del Toro film. Um, so just to, 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 you know, 
get the, the fullest experience. I think this is definitely director. Admittedly, I've not seen Kronos, so I do need to go back and, and check that out. And I don't remember much from Crimson Peaks. So I need to revisit that. Oh, Crimson Peaks, great. I've heard it is. Yeah. Is it the yeah. moody piece? Uh, Tom Hardy, sorry, sorry, Tom um, Hiddleston. Yes. Uh, not Tom Hardy, the other Tom. Tom uh, Hiddleston. I was like, I don't remember Tom Hardy. <laughs> uh, Tom Hiddleston is excellent in that film. Yeah. And then uh, finally, um, I would say uh, John Frankenheimer's second. I think there's elements of that, you know, more of a noir. I think we're, we're, we're pushing on that noir aspect a little bit more, but people who try to become somebody they aren't and uh, start to believe in their own lies that they've set up for themselves. Um, in this film, I actually haven't seen. I just watched a very excellent uh, video essay from the YouTube channel in praise of shadows uh, about seconds. And now I want to watch it, but I felt like it re- uh, was uh, related enough to uh, nightmare alley to bring it up here. Finally, the board game. Uh, the board game is one that came out this year, uh, this year, 2021, Dreadful Circus. Um, it is a game for, I believe, up to three to eight players where you're basically trying to a mysterious uh, carnival, you know, rolls into town with a deep, dark fog. And uh, you and however many other players you decide to play with are trying to create the most uh, devilishly delightful carnival, um, while also terrifying the, uh, the tenants. So it, it, it kind of treads on the, again, it's called uh, dreadful circus, but it, it treads on the, the dark carnival, you know, trope. I, suppose. I think we should have a gaming session for that game right after this is over. Dan, right. I've already got the table in front of us here. <laughs> I'm glad to see that you have it on the table for us to play right. Afterwards. I do. This it's is fantastic. It's <laughs> I can't wait. Well, thank you for those recommendations. You are the first to ever recommend a board game, yes. I do believe, on the cinematic schematic. So congratulations. Me. I'll, Don't I'll, let anybody else ever say or have that. I am the board game. I, that's the new standard ever. You're the board game? You are the board I game. I am the board game guy, but I am also the board game, yes. Okay, he, he is the board. He is one with the board game. Okay, so Daniel Bokemer <laughs> recommending some board games there. I'm going to go with a more contemporary recent release, one that I just think is way underseen that's also a neo-noir that I thought was excellent and that is Bad Times at the El Royale came out a couple of years ago it's got stars Jeff Bridges um, John Hamm gosh it's it's got a crazy stat cast uh, I think is that uh, Cynthia Rivo? I'm going to have to my double fact check that but I think she's in there too it's a uh, it's a terrific film uh, it it has it's, you know, pretty straight up noir, but it's all set in one hotel and it's like a big mystery about what happened, what's, what is going on, what happened, what is going on, okay. uh, who are the players where everyone kind of shows up and you don't trust anyone. You're like, oh, everyone clearly has a story or an angle. You just, when the, you know, as the movie plays out, you don't know where it is, yeah. but the further you get into the, the movie, you, you see, you see th- certain things from multiple perspectives and you they're kind of reveal a lot about the different characters and what their motivations are. Yeah. So again, I think just an underseen movie, I think it was 2018 or 2019 that I think everyone should check out bad times at the El Royale. I believe that was a drew Goddard film, uh, who from Buffy fame, I think he's worked uh, on a few other films since then. So yeah, check it out. Uh, and also, I mean, just because we were talking about it earlier and you know, I, I'll talk about it anytime death stranding. Hideo Kojima's uh, PlayStation four now on the PlayStation five, uh, game. Oh, and PC, uh, you know, Gail Toro does appear in it as a prominent character. Yeah. And it's really weird. And it's got some similar themes, I guess. And there, uh, I think everyone should, who likes video games should at least try it out. I will say at least it's another, uh, again, a, a different medium entirely, but another um, very strong visual storyteller. 
All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning into our spoiler-free review of Nightmare Alley. We have a B, we have a, a C plus, so therefore we like it. With that said, though, we are going to talk about a couple of the the themes that are on display in the film in a little more in depth, in which we'll be covering the spoilers. So, if you haven't seen Nightmare Alley and you don't want to be spoiled, go ahead and tune out now. Okay, Daniel. So, two main topics I just wanted to bring up for this one. Uh, the first one is he man or beast? So, I just have to ask first of all, though, I could not figure out where this film fell on the Nightmare on Elm Street chronology. Like, is it after yeah. Dream Children? Daniel. Is it before? I think this is a fil- this is after New Nightmare. It is after New Nightmare. See, this so is it's setting so- up its own new universe. Well, you you, you know that Bradley <gasps> Cooper is going to show up in the sequel. Caleb, so- which character was Freddy Krueger? Which character was that supposed to be? Uh, I don't. You know, it could have been a lot of the characters. Is he, oh. They're all Freddy Krueger, really, Daniel. Was it the it's baby in the vial? Oh. Was that <laughs> was that the unborn? Was it, uh, Tim Blake Nelson at the end? That was Freddy Krueger. Oh, oh yeah, I see it yeah, now. Yeah, okay, yeah, this this makes a lot more sense. Okay, oh can goodness. I revise my grade? It's A minus. No. A minus. No, <laughs> This would definitely be the best Nightmare on Elm Street, Street movie film, we've seen today. I will say. I mentioned this in the spoiler-free section here, Daniel. I mean, at this point, it's very well established that he's fascinated by stories where spoilers, people, are the real monsters. So I guess my question here for you is, do you think he makes a, a decent enough case to justify the director going back to that well yeah, I mean that's a well he um along with that and and you know facial mutilation that's a well that he likes to <laughs> dive into a lot. Um, and with good and, and with good cause. Um I think because it's important because it's it's a part of it. I, think, I mean as long as we have elected officials and demagogues we're we're you know Del Toro's going to be able to talk about something I think and um you know so in that sense it is a a, a universal story and I think both somewhat of a, I guess, morality play. I don't think I'm misusing that term when, when I uh, attach it to this film. Um, I do think, um, and I cannot remember the original source, but in, in fact, in an interview, he alluded to this. Um, I think we were talking about it um, shortly after we, we saw the film earlier in the week that he, uh, he apparently only has one regret as a filmmaker and that's turning down um not specifically doing like all of the universal dark universe movies, but apparently he was offered to basically a blank check to make a Frankenstein film. And I really hope he finds a way to come back to that because of course he is going to be reentering the well that we're describing right now, if he were to do so. I mean, I, yeah, I'm fantasy producing a little bit and you really, you really shouldn't get too too into the weeds of doing something like that because you'll probably be disappointed. This is why you would but, be mad at movies like Nightmare Alley. You're like, I mean, it was good, all, but why wasn't it? Frank? Well, is that Hellboy three? My, uh, I'm going to ask that about everybody. So, you know, Every Del Toro like, movie from now on. This is why you'd be mad at movies at like this point, You know, like, I gave I mean, Shape of Water. All, why wasn't it Frank? And he's not breaking B minus until Hellboy three comes I, out. It's, I'm, I'm going to ask that about it. It's just Every Del Toro movie from now on. But no, in all seriousness, that does not have any bearing on the quality of his films. But I think he doesn't, and I think there is more territory to explore. Again, this this film does feel kind of heavy handed in doing so. And then there are elements where like how much of a beast is this man? Well, look at the extent of his consequences. And there are instances where we already kind of established. So there's one moment. Um, and we were talking, we were kind of dancing around the the time hop a little bit and what it means. Um, basically at the root of the story, um, a guy becomes a carny specifically, he becomes a mentalist and, um, and he takes that into basically 
deceiving people into um, um, convincing him that he's a medium, that he's capable with speaking with the spirits in the afterworld. And he, he, he goes really hard in the paint on that. And in shortly after we get that time skip, he basically tricks a um, very susceptible older gentleman into believing that he can communicate he with. It was like a police. Ch- yeah, it was, it was she for some mayors. something. Yeah. And it was somebody who was powerful, but it was somebody who was very, emotional. I think it was like a, he was like a, pol- he was like a, a city and, official is, of some like kind. How that yeah, thing was chief uh, for like a mayor today, or something uh, like that. Is, yeah. is, is how mediums uh, operate um, on a significantly mar- larger scale for a lot more money and usually on um, national television, but um, they do nonetheless, but he's very susceptible, convinced him he was communicating with his brother by best, just using, you know, cues that you can derive from just talking to people through a, through a conversation because our brains sometimes work a, a lot simpler than uh, we like to believe and which is okay. We're just human, but he takes advantage of that person convince has a private session with him, convinces his, this man's wife that he's communicating with Julian, this deceased brother. And then later after we already established that what he is doing is wrong and bad, and we already see examples of why this is damaging people and how you're getting too lost, then we get like a two-minute sequence of the woman just being like, you know, I miss old Julian. I think I'm going to commit a murder homicide or a, like murder suicide now and kill her husband and then herself. And like, why is that there? I thought the consequence was already kind of like very clear, and so that – moment is one that feels um, a little odd. And I think it's, I don't know. It's sometimes I, it did make me question if he knew what all entirely he was trying to, to say or what more he wanted to say. He was just stacking kind of the same thing. Like it was almost reiteration rather than expansion on the thing. Well, I do think, I, I do think seeing the more violent, the, the more violent consequences of his of the actions certainly creates a more visceral response for it the audience. Does but yeah. we get a we get a face bashing later that is a, a visceral response. Like, this movie so. gets very violent in the in several parts. Yeah. I was I was about to lean over and ask you if if this film is PG thirteen at first. No, because it's it, definitely no. It's R. No, it's I get it, we get there, but like at first it just um. I questioned it because I felt like it did kind of pull away on some things and then, uh, but yeah, then no, there it is like uh, like a, a good face bashing due to, to, to poaching rabbits or whatever the excuse was and pan's labyrinth. Um, it shows up again. <laughs> and I think this is his most, one of his most violent movies since pan's labyrinth. I mean, you, you do get, there were, well, there's some stuff in, there's definitely some stuff in all of his Shape movies. of Water Shape has Shape of Water has a couple of gnarly, the cheek thing, I still think. Ooh, the finger, the, yeah. the, the two, I will break these pillars. And- <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with it. I, I think mentalism is an interesting topic to tackle here. Again, right. that was the thing. I didn't realize, I, I genuinely thought this was a movie about the circus. <laughs> <laughs> and you would you would think right i, 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 I did too I, like it's it's like i saw the trailer and i was like oh this movie's gonna be about like the carnivals and the dark nature of that and, and even and then the first act of this movie is that and it's re- pretty self-contained like that's oh, yeah. the thing yeah like when like, they leave like you could you could basically cut that out and then the rest of the story would still play yes i, I don't think it would play as well and that's why i was saying all of that ba- added backstory provides so much more context to the relationships that, you know, that we're seeing uh, from Bradley Cooper's Stanton with, 
along with starting the kid. Molly was his girlfriend, wife, question mark. So like, it, it, like that stuff's important. And also understanding what drew him to mentalism in the first place. Yeah. Very, like, very important backstory, but, like, you know, you really almost could have told the movie. So, whenever it skipped ahead two years, I was like, oh, okay, this is the end. This is where we're going to see what happened to them after. Yeah, no, I, I thought that, yeah. We were like, all right, we probably got, like, 20 minutes left, right? No. No, in fact, you have basically the whole movie ahead of you. <laughs> That's what I meant. I'm just saying, you don't think it would mean that much, but that at that small title card, that two years later that shows up. It just, I just started counting down and I couldn't help myself. And I, and I, I wish I had the restraint to just let the film play out. But like, once I was like, wait, there's m- way more to this. <laughs> like I almost started to, it almost like induced some panic, I guess. And, um, that sounds dramatic, but like it, it, it didn't really, but it, it definitely made me feel. Yeah. I just started to become way more critical about just the things that just seemed like extra because the, fi- because that's the thing. The story had so much legs already. Um, and the first 45 minutes and several portions of the, I guess the second and third act now knowing how the film is actually structured is, you know, powerful. Um, it just starts to feel like it's treading a bit more water. I would also say here's another angle that I, I think is compelling about this film as well. Right. You know, obviously this is a man who's toying with things that he, he does not control as much as he thinks he does, but I do like the idea also of this like scrappy upcomer, just like learning this, this trading, getting in, getting in too deep, you know, just like classic noir theme. Yeah. Like he, okay. He, oh, he, he, he joined the the circus. He, he became a carny so he could, and then he learned he could be a mentalist. And then he went to the big city and then all of a sudden he's playing with the big fish and you, you meet Kate Blanchett who, by the way, I didn't mention this in the review. She is killing it in this movie. She is yes. an a- excellent femme fatale. Yes. Yes, she is. Um, also, why the heck did Bradley Cooper trust her? <laughs> like, she was obviously bad news from Jump, but, you know. Hey. That, that was the thing. Ball, he's so confident. Like, it, it, that character just gets so stan, gets so confident. He, I don't, the weird thing is about this is like, so like throughout the film in the earlier starts of the part, he meets uh, Pete. And I, that actor is good. I'm trying to think of his name, who plays uh, Pete, who is like Tony Collette's Oh, David uh, husband yeah. question. Mark? Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, you know, explaining, you know, you don't go into spook shows and, and they use the word spook show throughout this film as like, you don't, you can't convince the audience of it too much because then you're really like manipulating and toying with their emotions and manipulating reality in a way that goes beyond just making a few bucks. Um, you start to really like traumatize people and, um, Stanton, the, the initial mentalist who basically teaches, um, or not Stanton, excuse me, Pete, the, the initial mentalist who teaches Stanton how to, um, you know, how to, how to do it, how to catch on the small signals, how to do the things and to, to, you know, manipulate the, the marks experience. Um, you know, which is the, again, yeah, the person they're trying to, uh, to rip off con, I guess, um, they, he, he, you know, no spook shows. Don't lean into it. Don't make them believe that it's actually real. Like you need to, if they do, I guess it's okay if it happens at the moment, but like you need to, to wind that down. And that's the thing. He just decides he's not going to wind it down. I don't think he ever actually believes. I don't think that the question is whether or not he actually believes he can do it. Like he knows the entire time he's, he's not 
clairvoyant. Oh, I, no, no, no. But, I, I, no, no. I, I think it's very clear that yeah. he, he knows, he even says it in the movie, he says, I know who I am. I'm a con man. Like, yeah. like I'm a hustler. Like, but, he, he doesn't believe the supernatural behind any of it. But he just doesn't. He has no understanding of what these lies do for other people. And I don't... It's hard to know if he does, and he's just apathetic towards it. And it goes as it gets further, you think maybe he does, and he just doesn't. Yet, we'll see. That's kind of the ambiguity yeah. because we see we see that he murdered his father. So you know that the the fact that he murdered his father didn't really change my perception of him much, honestly. It, yeah, it, it did didn't, because yeah. when it was clear by the time by the time they revealed that it was very clear that he was a man who's out for himself. Yeah, uh, he carries around a lot of guilt, so. I would say I wouldn't say he's apathetic. I, I well, that's tough. I, I he is apathetic, but also there's a part of him that feels guilty at the same time. It's really uh, tough. It's like he does it and he feels a little bad about it later, but he's always confident he's going to get out of it. Well, and yeah, and he he is, but he's always well aware that he is running. I don't think he ever has a feeling of like ease or like true like meaningful comfort you know you might see slight examples of that but he's always running and and i think that sticks with the character and i will say uh the character of stan carlisle is um composed especially in terms of like a traditional noir protagonist he is composed very very acutely in that way like he is he you know, has the, 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 the dark at first kind of mysterious past that we do get light shed on later. But then at the same time, they also warm you up, do a really great job of yeah, warming you up. Cause him. you like him. Yeah, I liked he, him. I, I think he, he was, was very light. Like, yeah. That's the, they, they really spent a lot of time building him up in that again, which is why I think that first act at the carnival like is really, really important because yeah. you, you see like he's a man with ambition Uh he, he, he really loves Molly. He also really respects the craft that he's learning you're rooting for him. He's like the underdog. Right. Yeah. So, so I liked, I thought I found him to be very likable, which is what makes the second half of the movie so compelling. Cause you're like slowly realizing, Oh wait, I like this guy, but he's actually not a good guy. No, not at all. And, um, it, yeah. And, and it explores that trajectory very well. And honestly, it hits all of the points it needs to, 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 and it's very, very ultimately a very, you know, a circular narrative. Um, or a secular yes. narrative that that works, um, that that does work. Like it operates um, well in that way. It, it, it's just, yeah. I get. I guess there's something about it that just that just feels uh, a little off. Again, for lack of a better term, kind of like heavy-handed. But at the same time, these are themes that kind of need to be clear sometimes. And sure. Um, and and so then I do wrestle with that. A little bit, but the more I wrestle with it, the more I, I see that as a potential weakness of the film. I, I never felt like the more heavy-handed approach was clunky. I didn't. Yeah. It, it wasn't necessary, questionable, but I never, it, it, it wasn't, I never felt like any of the stuff he did was out of place, personally. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't detrimentally impact the film. I, I would still argue that there's, um, there did seem to be, it seemed he had already gotten his point across, and the movie was already starting to feel... A little long, so like let's let's move it a bit. And again, I talk about that final shot 
let's say there's a final shot where I'm gonna, yeah, you can we're in spoilers. You can, yeah, we're in spoilers. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a final shot where Tim Blake Nelson gives him a job as a geek. Yes, yes. He offers him a. Uh, he says you're going to be a geek, but you're going to be a temporary geek only for a little while until we find another geek, which is the the trick. Earlier, Willem Dafoe's character explains um, to uh, to Stan objectively that. Um, a geek is, you know, how he get him is he goes find somebody on Nightmare Alley, which is where former you mostly it's uh, veterans before the VA was a meaningful thing, um, which even now I don't know if it helps this entirely too much, but um, it, definitely a different time either way. And and there might be somebody who's addicted to poppy or alcoholics and he just grabs them off the street and then slowly begins drugging them and getting them addicted to, I think morphine. They don't really like, they don't, they're not too descript or I didn't catch it anyway, but it's some kind of drug that he sneaks into the booze that creates a very harsh dependency. And then now you have a wild man who's going to just, you know, exist for you and be crazy until you're done with him. Eat the chickens and and eat the chickens heads off, which was a good setup and payoff because uh, I also thought they spent a lot of time highlighting the geek both like the Willem Dafoe explaining it, but you also, mm-hmm. there's a lot of shots and how, you know, Bradley Cooper was very sympathetic. He, he felt very bad uh, about this guy. And there's a, yeah. Well, and there's that critical moment where I guess he does build something. He's trying to tell um, the, the initial geek, the first geek he gets, he runs off and he gets like lost in a, in a uh, one of the like fun houses. And Bradley Cooper's trying to um, Stanton is trying to convince him to leave and he hits him with a, like the, the geek like hits him with like a rock or something. And it creates that initial scar, which we do see trail back a little bit later in the film where he gets shot and grazed across his face and his ear um, or gets like his ear blown off almost entirely. But um, before then, he has that that facial mark and it kind of you see a connection between him and the, the geek. And I always thought and I, I kind of saw it like, OK, Somehow he is going to fulfill this role. I don't know how we're going to get there, but we're going to get there. The same breath, that final shot, because he gets offered to be a geek and the guy asks him like, you know what a, um, you know what a geek is, don't you boy? (laughs) And he's like, I sure do or something or something like that. And he's like, he laughs. It's, it's just a shot. It's like a 30 second shot of just, um, Bradley Cooper's face basically destroyed the, the the bullet wound is now formed into a proper scar along with the other scars he's picked up across this journey and he's looking a little ragged but bradley cooper he's still pretty hot even ragged let's just let's put that out there he yeah is laughing and i get it i get the effect that it was trying to go for is make you uncomfortable to make you kind of like to try and resonate but it just we live in a post joker um, world. And I think, unfortunately, I'm not going to be made as uncomfortable by a laugh that's awkward as, as I would be in that film. So, and that's not, again, not that this shouldn't exist. It just felt a little, a little long. It felt a little, I don't know. I think it could have dropped it, just him smiling and just saying that line. And then there it is. That's all you needed. But that's again, Again, that scene kind of epitomizes how I feel about the film in that it kind of overstays its welcome a little bit sometimes. It's a little too on the nose and it overstays its welcome. Exactly. I don't know that I feel the same way, but I I, I definitely, but I see where you're coming from with it. Daniel, this has changed my perception a little bit, though. The the way you describe it, though, is he knows what a geek is and he takes the job anyway. So I think he does feel really bad about all the things because he thinks that's what he deserves. Do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I I think maybe in, in the true morality play sense, he's like, yes. I, I could choose to just run the, like he could have just ran like right then, like, no, I'm not doing it and go and probably still not have a great life, still be on the run, but he wouldn't be, um, 
thrown into a pit and biting the heads off of chickens, um, as he'll probably inevitably do, or something even worse, maybe. It's almost like why he's and that's I don't know. I would read that as that's kind of why the why why he's laughing. He's, he's like laughing and just the poetic <laughs> despair. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and the poetic irony of it all, like that, and and I don't know. It is kind of yeah. So I guess that reframes it. Makes a hits a little differently. Um, not too much to um change my perspective, but I, I never really begged that question. So, huh, interesting. So the moral of the story is at the end of this podcast is don't believe in mediums. They're no. just there to manipulate you and take your money. Carnies. Carnies, every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Daniel Bokemper, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been great talking with you. Uh, where can listeners keep up with you and your work online if they want to hear more of your thoughts on films? Absolutely. For films specifically, of course, the cinematropolis.com. I last wrote an essay on the ecological plea that was preserved in uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, um, also contributed to a uh, very fun and ultimately very insightful. Not not a, not uh, on my account. Mostly, I would say Joe Light and Dalton Stewart and Caleb Masters' account, the Dune Podcast. We recorded. You will also find a essay on Nightmare Alley coming up. Um, that I'm very excited about. Yeah, check it out. Find that essay right over at thecinematropolis.com. And also, if you want to keep up with more things we do at The Cinematropolis, you can follow us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. I'm tweeting about all sorts of things these days. Same things what, always. What are, you, what are you tweeting the most about? Films? Uh, uh, always films. Okay. probably the most popular. But, you know, okay. I get a lot of video game opinions. You know, yeah. I got a lot of TV opinions, especially like successions that are wrapping up now. I probably tweet about that a little bit. You know, it's films, television, video games, man. That's what I'm about. Check it out. Uh, that's on Twitter, at C Masters Talk. That is letter C Masters Talk. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today. We have an exciting slate of films uh, coming up here. We've got the the Matrix uh, Resurrections coming up. We also have Spider-Man No Way Home uh, coming up here very soon. So two films that I'm very hopeful that we'll talk about on this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Cinematic Schematic on your preferred podcast app. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll catch you again next time.